Nothing is any clearer than that after Jesus' crucifixion, his earliest followers experienced him as a living presence. Furthermore, as they contemplated the rich and extravagant layers of significance found in such expressions and titles as Messiah, Son of Man, Lord, Son of God, and Kingdom of Heaven, as they reflected on all Jesus had said and done in those three years before his death when they were with him day and night, and as they reflected on their post-Easter experiences of Jesus, they penetrated strata after strata after strata of meaning until they came to understand the depth and total reality of Jesus' full identity. I am utterly convinced that Jesus has been and is experienced again and again and again by countless men and women as living precisely because that is what indeed he is, the living, the cosmic Christ, the divine light, living God, and essence of love. By cosmic Christ, I do not mean something uh, dreamlike, something so spiritualized, so uh, ethereal, nebulous, and unreal um, as to be uh, uh, unbelievable. Uh, like Rohr and Bourgeau's quasi-Gnostic slash quasi-Eastern slash quasi-New Age Jesus. But the the life, the power, the, the presence, the purpose, and the will of God, which pervades the whole cosmos. By cosmic Christ, I mean what the Eastern Orthodox Church is in, in continuity with the Apostles has always meant by Pantocrator. Pantocrator means ruler of all, but it is not ruler as we ordinarily conceive it in the West, an authoritarian and threatening power demanding unthinking obedience to its irrational whims and capricious inclinations. But rather it is ruler in the sense of a divine strengthening and energy and sustaining love. It envisions the universe as ruled through forgiveness and wisdom and compassion. At the inside top of the dome of Eastern Orthodox churches, there is an icon of Christ, the, the Pantocrator, the cosmic Christ, Christ the King and Restorer, of the universe. In this icon, Christ is not pictured with a crown and scepter as are other kings of this world. The eyes seem to look with understanding into the heart of the viewer. The high curved forehead is meant to suggest intelligence and wisdom. According to the Byzantine standards of the time, the features of the face are intended to convey nobility of character. The closed mouth, the wisdom that emerges from contemplative silence. The impression one gets in meditating on this icon is that the Pantocrator, the, the cosmic Christ, is also 
profoundly, warmly personal. The, the cosmic Christ is the one in whom all things hold together, in, which, in whom all things, as St. Paul put it, cohere. The one in whom, as the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 1, all things in heaven and earth are united. The cosmic or universal Christ is, as the prologue to John's gospel asserts, the word or the logos, the, the organizing principle, reason, and structure of the universe that satisfies our longing for some order, for some sanity. But the sanity, the reason, the order, and the harmony is a person. Jesus Christ is Lord of the universe and the human face of God, who restores the dignity and the glory of humanity, and who, who is the hope of all creation. By cosmic Christ, I mean what the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and uh, 2, 9 through 10. The Son, he wrote, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. I also mean what St. John wrote in his prologue uh, to, to his gospel, chapter 1, verses oh, 1 through 5, 9 through 14, and 17 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all humankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, uh, 
nor of human decision or will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made God known. When the ancient Greek philosophers contemplated the beauty and the order of the universe and of of the human mind, of reason, they marvel at it and ask themselves, what, what is it that gives and maintains this order? Where does reason come from? Where does, where does mathematical logic come from? Why doesn't everything just dissolve into utter chaos? Their answer was that just as speech gives order, makes rational thought possible, so there must be a speech, a word, logos, a cosmic or divine mind, truth, reason, thought from which this order comes and that holds all things together. Even the ancient Hebrew word for, uh, for word, devar, could be used to refer not only to speech, but to action as well. There was, they believed, an energy or a power to and in words. So virtually everyone in that first century Greco-Roman world would have agreed, just as most people living today would agree with the, with the first verses of John's prologue, that there is a light, a mind, a reason, a truth, an energy that runs around and through all things and is in all things. As Wadsworth put it, a motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought, and rolls through all things. There would also have been widespread agreement in the ancient Greco-Roman world and in ancient Palestine world that uh, most human beings, excluding themselves, of course, uh, either reject or are too asleep to appreciate this poetic life, to appreciate this force, this energy, this reason, this mind or or consciousness that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought, and rolls through all things. It is when John asserts, the word became flesh and made us dwelling among us, It's with the doctrine of the Incarnation that there is a problem. How can this finite flesh bear the infinite? How can God be limited to a human person? I think it is either the great Catholic theologian von uh, Balthasar or maybe Karl Reiner, uh, I'm, I'm not sure which right now, who thought that if human beings are made in the image of God, then something of that image is in God, and so incarnation is possible. Everything that God makes has 
as a result of God's self-giving love, the potential to become an expression of God and of God's love. The earliest Christians were a people of faith, of a genuine Easter faith. They simply did not think or evaluate things in the, in the same way we do. Not because they thought in a pre-critical or primitive manner, but because they thought more in terms of uh, relationship and of experiential reality. Uh, they didn't even divide things up between supernatural and natural. Uh, rather, the distinction they made was between the creator and the creation. And the, and the creation included not only what we can see, but everything we can't see. Their passion uh, after Easter was not to invent 10,000 explanations for the incarnation or to engage in interminable theological debates, but to connect their previous experience, their pre-Easter encounter with Jesus of Nazareth, with the new presence of the risen Lord. In some circles, it has become a mark of sophistication to speak of the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith, or to separate the pre-Easter and the post-Easter Jesus, who Jesus was as an ordinary man from uh, who he was in the excited imaginations of his followers. In reality, of course, the two simply cannot be separated. The Jesuit scholar, Christian mystic, author, and international figure in facilitating interreligious dialogue, William Johnston, observed that some scholars are quick to cut the link between the historical Jesus and the cosmic Christ, thinking that if the cosmic Christ can be divorced from the historical Christ, from the historic Jesus, then the cosmic Christ can be maybe equated with the all-pervading Buddha nature or with some uh, nebulous force or energy. However, said Johnston, who understood Buddhism from the inside out, when things are ironed out in this way, neither true Buddhists nor true Christians are happy. If, he wrote, one has a minimum of fidelity to Paul and John and Luke and the rest of them, one sees that the cosmic Christ is precisely the Jesus who shed his blood. If anything is clear in the preaching of the New Testament, Johnson said, it is that the true crucified Jesus is now alive. Even the wildest exegetes cannot find in the Bible a discontinuity between Jesus of Nazareth and the Christ who has the primacy over all things. I want to stress this, Johnston said, lest I be identified with a lot of Gnostic rubbish that creates air pollution in the theological skies of our day. The question of what we can know about Jesus and what he actually taught 
has at times been horribly muddled by both the religious right and the left. The Jesus painted for us is frequently simplistic, trivial, and of little consequence. As Craig Evans, professor and director of graduate studies at Acadia Divinity College, writes in his book, Fabricating Jesus, we live in a time that indulges, even encourages, some of the strangest thinking. The far theological left, extremely liberal, secular, or non-confessing scholars, uh, aided by the popular media, media uh, love to grab attention and, and market whatever it is they are selling by saying or claiming whatever it thinks will shock most of us. Celebrity theologians and popular religious authors seem to give us a new portrait of Jesus every winter just in time for Christmas or every spring just in time for Easter. The more unusual the portrait, the more it departs from the historic orthodox view of Jesus, the more attention it is sure to get in the media. Did you know that Jesus' hands may have been tied rather than nailed to the cross? As if that made any difference. That Jesus might not have been born in Bethlehem, that Jesus had a child by Mary Magdalene, that Jesus' father was actually a Roman soldier, that Jesus was not buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and said his body was thrown into a ditch. Did you know that the tomb of Jesus' family, containing the bones of Mary and Joseph of Jesus, uh, has been discovered by archaeologists? No, wait. Jesus actually survived his ordeal on the cross, escaped the tomb, and lived another 25 years in Egypt. He even wrote letters uh, saying it was all a big mistake. He never claimed to be the Son of God and was really sorry things got so out of hand. What was Jesus really like, they ask us, as if creating a headline for a cheap tabloid or internet ad. The Gospels, it is claimed, are just made-up stories written long after the death of Jesus and are completely unreliable historically. 82% of the sayings the claim is made and 84% of the actions attributed to Jesus are not authentic. That is, he just did not really say or do them. The religious right, with its insistence that everything written in the Bible about Jesus is to be interpreted, interpreted in a rigidly literal and factual way, is just as bizarre. There is a tremendous emphasis on the divinity of Jesus by some uh, conservative scholars, but an underappreciation of his full humanity so that, in the end, Jesus, for all practical purposes, is understood as God only pretending to be human. Jesus touching a leper is no longer seen as an act of love, but as a safe healing te technique practiced by someone supernaturally protected from the terrors of life. The purpose of Jesus' coming is no longer understood as the enactment of that deeper magic the magic of love, of which Aslan speaks in The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, but as the fulfillment of a certain 
divine obligation, a sort of business transaction that so that we can go to heaven someday, a system of rewards and punishments that will enable us to go on a really great and unending vacation or to tell us the specific things we need to think so that we won't be damned for all time. As if there is no more to life than behaving in a carefully prescribed manner or mechanically reciting certain philosophical or theological or doctrinal propositions as if they were, what, magical incantations. The problem with both approaches, with both the religious right and left, is that they render Jesus small and inconsequential. Even Richard Rohr's use of the expression cosmic Christ as a kind of new age cliche is reductionistic and trivializes Christ. Many find themselves wondering, why is the public so eager to accept such claims without question? I think at least one answer is simply that most people don't want to believe and therefore are always looking for reasons not to believe. The great human flaw is the desire to be in control, no matter what the consequences or cost. And therefore, people will not, cannot turn their lives over to a power greater than themselves. Their philosophy requires that those spiritual faith claims that do not fuel feelings of self-deification and grandiosity must be thrown out of the house. At this point in my life, I find I really have little energy or inclination for arguing about the life, words, or deeds of Jesus of Nazareth. If a conversation is pointless, I would much prefer to invest my time and my heart in solitude and quiet contemplation. But to those who would honestly like to know what Jesus of Nazareth was like, or who might even be asking that ancient question raised in Scripture, who do people say Christ is? Or who may have, uh, people who may have the, uh, the open attitude expressed in the modern rock opera, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, superstar. Who are you? What have you sacrificed? Don't get me wrong. I just want to know. So having been so presumptuous as to take the vows of a shepherd, I say that what I have found in nearly 80 years of Christian life is that doubts, questions, and uncertainties are nothing to fear. In fact, spiritual progress is directly related to the intensity of our struggles. That's what I believe. Among the takeaways of my own experience reading and studying the methods of higher form historical or redaction criticism that is variously, are variously known are these two. One, I simply have never found the arguments of form criticism particularly strong or convincing. In my next podcast, I will take up the study of Christian origins and 
the canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and their reliability. Two, as someone acquainted with the professional world, I'm aware of the corrupting pressures involved in advancing an, an academic career. The pressure to publish creative and original ideas and thoughts that are seen as contributing to one's field of study and to succeed in those ways by which success is normally measured, status, money, and power or influence. This is as true in the academic discipline of theology or in the pastorate as anywhere else. I, re I, I recommend anyone who thinks I am joking or exaggerating to read Sabar's Veritas, a well-written, meticulously researched, and carefully documented expose of how a wife-pimping con artist engaged Harvard University's uh, top administrators and its divinity school professor Karen King and other renowned scholars of other great universities as accomplices in the gospel of Jesus's wife hoax. Three, my third takeaway is that what can only be termed a certain psychopathology may be at work here. Glenn F. Chestnut, professor of history and religious studies at Indiana University, states it well. He said, only someone incredibly naive or someone with a deeply pathological need to believe that God does not exist would buy any of the intellectualizing pseudo-explanations that I have read over almost 50 years of studying this kind of thing. Or, and here is a third possibility, someone with a profound control neurosis who begins to feel panicky if he or she cannot give a full logical explanation. A psychological control neurosis, writes Chestnut, lies at the bottom of a good deal of human misery and unhappiness. Well, this is as far as I will go for now.